You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine at University of Illinois Chicago, Dr. Jay Goldstein. Today we're going to be discussing colonoscopy and its preparation. How do we get our patients to take their prep, take it correctly, and do it successfully with the greatest level of safety? Join me today in welcoming Dr. Helen Shields from the Harvard Medical School. She is an associate professor of medicine and is involved in the safety program at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Shields. Thank you, Jay. I'm happy to talk with the other physicians about preparation for colonoscopy. Wonderful. As we enter into this discussion, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and some of the work that you've done in this area? I am a clinical gastroenterologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and associate professor at Harvard and was made back in 2004 chairman of the colorectal Cancer Advisory Committee for Harvard University's Risk Management Foundation. That foundation, the Risk Management Foundation, is devoted to helping minimize risk to both patients and physicians from diagnostic and therapeutic procedures, from medications, from all that we do for patients. And we also put out the guidelines for colon cancer screening for all Harvard physicians. If I had to ask you the question, what is the singular most important factor for a successful screening colonoscopy, what would the answer be? The answer is clearly the preparation, whether it's good enough visualization of the colon so that you can give the average risk patient the kind of time in years that you'd like to be able to give them between 5 and 10 years between colonoscopies. If the preparation is excellent, depending on what you find in the colonoscopy. So, in other words, the prep really determines the confidence that you have that a negative exam is truly a negative exam. Is that true? Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's move on. There's been a lot of information in the literature of late discussing phosphate soda preps and the like. Can you summarize that literature briefly and give us some background about that? What are the toxicities that we worry about and what are the controversies surrounding the use of these types of products? The phosphate preps have come under scrutiny since 2005 when 21 cases of nephrocalcinosis or calcium phosphate deposition in the tubules of kidneys led to renal failure on a persistent basis in patients at Columbia Presbyterian's Hospital for Physicians and Surgeons. And that alerted people and the FDA to announce in 2006 that physicians should be very careful to exclude patients from a phosphate prep who had diabetes, renal disease, congestive heart failure, who were on ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, on diuretics, or on nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory medications. Dr. Markowitz also noted that 81% of his patients with the problem were women over 60. So age and gender play an important factor? 
they may well be, in all series so far, they have been women predominance. Are these risk factors, so to speak, absolute contraindications to use phosphosoda, or you use the word carefully? The fleet's company voluntarily took off the market their AccuPrep within six months after the FDA's advisory, which had the double doses in the package of the 45 milliliters of fleet's phosphate of soda for two doses. And so they voluntarily took that off, and Visicol, which is the tablet equivalent of the 60 grams of fleet's phosphate of soda, has also strong warnings on it now about renal failure. So the companies, Salix Pharmaceutical makes Visicol and Fleet, CB Fleet Company makes the Fleet's phosphate of soda, they have recognized that there is a significant issue and have warnings on their preps. The issue did not arise until the 1990s because Fleet's phosphate of soda has been available since 1893. But the dose was always, the maximum dose was the 45 ml, which would give you approximately 30 grams of the phosphate. And when it was doubled in 1990 by Stephen Vanner and his colleagues in Ontario, Canada, and it was shown to be effective in a head-to-head comparison with polyethylene glycol or more effective and more patient-tolerated, the PrEP took off without FDA approval for the double dose. It took off exponentially, and the number of doses rose tremendously of patients being asked to take two doses of sodium phosphate rather than the traditional one before 1990. So in the past, we've used double dosing, so to speak. Uh, Since 1990, since the Stephen Vanner study showed that it was preferable in terms of quality of PrEP and ease of PrEP. That study was a landmark study, although there was never any scientific study to show that that 60 grams of sodium phosphate was not going to cause trouble because in all of us, there's a tendency towards saturation of phosphate in our tubules. But with the dehydration and with the PrEP, which is an osmotic PrEP, with the dehydration that occurs, it appears that in some patients, an unknown number, there is precipitation of the phosphate with calcium in the tubules. So I guess your take-home message here would be use a single dose, 45 mils? That has, for many years, been an acceptable dose and hydrate the patient Hydrate the carefully. patient and evaluate them for risk factors. Right. Do not give it to people with all the risk factors that I mentioned. Okay. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Goldstein, and joining me today is Dr. Helen Shields from Harvard Medical School discussing colonoscopy and its preparation. Well, let's move on. We've talked a little bit about phosphate preparations. What other alternatives are there for gastroenterologists to successfully cleanse the colon prior to colonoscopy? The classic preparation has been the polyethylene glycol. And how do those work? That works as an osmotic cathartic also, but it doesn't pull as much fluid into from the tissues into the lumen of the bowel, not as much. It's a balanced solution which moves down the GI tract, clearing the debris and the stool out with less dehydration intravascularly. 
than the sodium phosphate prep. The problem for patients has been a number of patients complain about the large volume. So in the last few years, there's been a new preparation called Movi Prep, which has been put out, which is marketing itself as a low-volume preparation with high-volume efficacy. It also is a polyethylene glycol base, but in approximately half the volume of the classic polyethylene glycol prep. And it has sulfate, sodium chloride, potassium chloride, and ascorbic acid. And there are a number of physicians now starting to use this. Well, when using these PEG-based preparations, whether it's the high volume or low volume, are there special instructions that we have to give our patients before we use them? And should we be using prokinetic agents when they're given? Jay, I traditionally have not used prokinetic agents, but I do know physicians who will give a prokinetic agent. Those agents, for the most part, can have their own side effects. So I traditionally have asked people, instead of starting late in the afternoon, is to start early in the morning so that they have enough hours of daylight and because the prep acts at a variable time, as all these preps do. So the other thing that I've done to help patients and perhaps not have to take the entire prep is put them on a very low-fiber diet for a week, no seeds, no nuts, fruits, or vegetables, and avoid constipating things like vitamin pills with iron, calcium tablets, known constipating items, as well as avoiding Metamucil and other types of psyllium compounds that might be more difficult to clean out. So you restrict their diet and keep it at a low-residue low diet for about a week? About a week. And that has helped significantly to avoid the skins, the seeds, the poppy seeds, and other seeds that can be difficult to suck up into the colonoscope. Something that we all live by on a daily basis, isn't it? Uh, what about split dosing of the uh, PEG solutions? I think that's a great idea. If you can work it out with the patient to take it at two separate intervals, I think that's one way to do it. I think another way is to go back to magnesium citrate. As long as the patient doesn't have renal insufficiency or known renal disease, the, the old-fashioned small-volume citrate of magnesia, which is not much more than an eight-ounce bottle, one bottle a day of that for two days, along with a low-fiber diet. And one may need some clearing enemas, a small-volume enemas the day of the procedure, just to make sure that the left colon is clear. But that's a prep that I use in anyone who says they don't want high volume. So I use magnesium citrate, one bottle, one day, another bottle, the following day. I don't use two bottles in the same day for the same reason, issue of possible dehydration. Well, I urge our listenership to go to the website at aga.org and review this material in greater depth and gastro.org, G-A-S-T-R-O dot org. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Helen Shields, for joining us today from Harvard Medical School and speaking to us regarding preparation for colonoscopy, the risks and benefits. Thank you very much, Helen. Thanks, Jay, very much. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, 
visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA.